0: God, I do pray that this morning uh, that we would rely on you and your word, that we would, in a fresh way, be able to cast off any notions of self-reliance. Uh, we are all prone to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. So part of our being together and being in your word is to deconstruct any notions of self-confidence before you. It's only because of Christ that we can have confidence to stand in your presence, it's only by uh, the work that you've done within us that we can even understand your word this morning. So I pray that through the work of your spirit that you would illumine to us um, the sweetness of your word for us today. I pray that where we find ourselves maybe uh, feeling this shadow of condemnation, that if we are in Christ that we would understand once again the uh, the abounding nature of grace that abounds all the more where our sin seems, seems to increase. So we, we thank you that because of Jesus, we are secure, that we'll be kept till the end. And we ask that you do work in us through your word this morning to make us more like him, to love you more, Father, and, and to be those who give you praise, not just with our lips, but with our lives. Uh, thank you for this time. We ask that you'd be pleased by it and that you'd work through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good to see everybody. Hope you're doing well. You can grab your Bibles and open to uh, the book of Acts. That's where we'll be this morning. If you haven't been with us, we have started a journey through the book of Acts in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. Uh, we make it our pattern as a church to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, and we are in Acts for what will be the majority of this year. Uh, a couple quick things we got some new pew bibles if you are in the need of a bible uh, certainly if you're visiting you need a bible you can feel free to grab one of these and take it with you if you want some to take with you from our old stack uh, most of those are going to uh, the church plant in berga but if you want some we've got some left over we can give them to you you can pass them out to your neighbors save them give them to people for christmas next year whatever you want to do all right and if you haven't gotten one of these Acts booklets, uh, we have been giving these away the last couple of weeks. Uh, we still have several more out in the foyer on the, on the bar, on the counter. So scoop one of those up. Uh, it's basically the book of Acts in bound form with empty pages for notes. I think you'll find it really fruitful as you're studying God's Word and as you come here to join us as we study through the book of Acts. Uh, this morning we'll be looking at uh, verses 20 through 26 in chapter 1. And before we jump in, um, let me just comment on a couple of things. Like, we wait a lot in life. Anybody say amen to that? Amen. Even this week, you probably had to wait for something, I'm guessing. Waiting for your clothes to dry, or waiting at the doctor's office, the dentist's office, waiting for test results maybe at school or maybe even medically waiting for test results, right? Uh, we wait for all kind of things. We wait for car repairs. Some of you even this morning had to wait for somebody to get ready in your house, to leave the house. Anybody? Any takers on that? Man, you guys too. Everybody in the first service is on, on tab too. Everybody getting ready in time. But anyways, we get we get ready a lot. We wait a lot. And here's a survey from Timex, the same company that makes the watches. They say uh, human beings spend about 37 billion hours each year waiting in line somewhere. 75% of that is at Disney World, I'm pretty sure. And approximately six months of our lives waiting in line for things. The average person spends about 43 days on hold with automated customer service in one lifetime. That's a depressing statistic, but some of you know the reality of that. We spend a lot of time waiting for things, and in that short list I gave you, uh, some of those are pretty meaningless things that we wait for. Some of them are more serious. And there's a question in all of the waiting in our lives is like, do we wait well? Do we find ourselves waiting well when we're called to, to wait? And I would guess all of us need to grow in waiting well. Uh, this part of Acts um, is a historical book that kind of gives us the, the chronicles of the acts of the church. And we talked last week, it could be the acts of several different people, but probably plainly is the acts of the Holy Spirit through his apostles um, it's really the, the way in which the church was birthed and grew and the way the gospel spread to the known world. And so in this kind of infant church, we're going to see an example of God's people waiting, particularly waiting for a, a period of 10 days from Jesus's ascension when he went to heaven to when the Holy Spirit came to give them power to do their job, to fulfill their mission. And in that 10-day period, I think there's some There's some helpful principles we can kind of draw out, some of which we can't apply directly because we're not waiting for the Holy Spirit. Again, uh, if you know your Bible, the New Testament, the picture is that as Christians now, we have received the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, and we are temples of the Holy Spirit. We've been given God's Spirit in full order to to be who he's called us to be, to live in the way he's called us to live, and to do the things in which he's called us to do. So praise God. We have the fullness of God's spirit to do those things, but there's obviously various ways we're still called to wait. So there's overlap here between the end of the book of Luke and the beginning of the book of Acts. If you weren't with us last week, as you read your Bible, Acts is really volume two of the gospel of Luke. Luke wrote both books, and you can kind of see the gospel of Luke bleed into Acts. He writes it to the same person, this Roman official who came to faith, uh, so he would be sure about what he's been taught. And it's a chronicle, firstly, of Jesus's life and ministry, and then kind of Jesus's ministry from heaven through the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. It's kind of a real brief thumbnail sketch. And so what happens at the end of Luke uh, in chapter 24 Uh, we hear this. It says, after Jesus ascended, they they worshiped him. They worshiped Jesus and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And we're continually in the temple blessing God. So Jesus is carried up into heaven. Uh, You might remember they stood there, kind of in amazement, staring into the clouds. And the angels were like, why are you still standing here? Go do your job. Jesus told you what to do. Now go. And Jesus told them to go to Jerusalem and wait. And so it's as if they're turning from the Mount of Olives, over by Bethany, this city, and they're going back a short distance to Jerusalem to wait, because Jesus told them to wait until the Holy Spirit would come. And that's where we find ourselves. This brief section is kind of a 10-day period leading into chapter 2, which is the, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. So if you look in Acts, in chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. So um, the Israeli law, Jewish law and custom, you could only work so much on the Sabbath. So this didn't take them a day, a Sabbath day's journey. It took them about 15 minutes. It's like a two-mile walk back to Jerusalem. But just imagine what that walk would have been like. So over the period of 40 days, we hear from Luke, Jesus appeared in various ways to various people alive from the dead, and he preached the kingdom. And so now they've seen him go into heaven, promise of the Spirit, and they turn and they walk to some fifty minutes back to Jerusalem to wait for 10 days for what Jesus had promised. And there's, there's something really simple here that I think we can miss if we don't just pause for a second. This is actually a moment of really sweet and simple obedience on behalf of the disciples. If you read much of the, the Gospels, you know that this ragtag bunch was guilty of all sorts of weirdness and confusion and even disobedience. And this is a real simple turn for them to say, we're going to follow what Jesus said. They'll song, trust and obey. they are going to trust what Jesus promised. They're going to obey him, go back to Jerusalem. They're going to wait. They're going to wait on him. There's a worshipful, there's an unshakable joy and unwavering obedience. They, they didn't merely just hear Jesus's words, that they responded in obedience. And I think it's always good for us when we think about coming here, um, a, a sermon, my role up here and being a conduit of God's word and God's grace to y'all. is not merely just to give you information, that you'd be informed about the Bible somehow. I pray that there'd be helpful components of that, but ultimately it's so that what, so our lives would be transformed that we'd respond in obedience to God to the things that we hear. And that's what you see in this infancy of the church. The church receives commands from Jesus and they simply turn and they obey. And that's still day is the mark of the true believer. We hear the word of God and we turn and we trust and obey God. Even when it's difficult, even when it involves waiting, that we wait for the Lord and, and rely on his word because we trust in him. We joyfully submit to our king. So let's keep reading in verse 13. It says, And when they entered, when they came to Jerusalem, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. So 11 apostles minus Judas Iscariot, who we'll hear about here in just a moment, who had betrayed Jesus and is dead now. So their arrival back in Jerusalem marked the beginning of this 10-day period. So what's interesting about this, it doesn't say for sure. There's some debate about this. It says they went to the upper room. So it's like a definite article. Not a upper room, but the upper room. So some believe it's this very same room where Jesus would have, some weeks earlier, promised God's Spirit was going to come, place where the Last Supper took place. So John 13 through 15-ish Jesus is there with his disciples, and in chapter 14, speaks of the Holy Spirit, possibly in his very same room. Like, what a remarkable picture. They're going back to it, the very same place where God's Spirit was promised, is exactly where he's going to come in chapter 2 when we get there next week. But in John chapter 14, verse 18, Jesus says this. He says, I'll ask the Father. He's talking about the fact he's going to be leaving. He says, I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. I love this real simple promise he gives them. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. But I'm going to come to you. I'm going to come to you through the, the Holy Spirit, this comforter, this helper. Then in verse 14, we, it says, all these, all the apostles with one accord were the, devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women. And Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So let me just kind of unpack this for a second. So, this idea of being with, in one accord is translated in other places like one mind, one spirit, even. But this, this word one accord is actually a compound word in the Greek that could mean this, quite literally fierce togetherness. Those two words combined together in the English come to us as one accord. So, here's the picture is that believers in the infant form of the church had a fierce commitment to togetherness, to unity to being together, to being unified in the things of God with one another and primarily in prayer. The church is together, fierce in their unity to one another, fierce because of their unity. This has always defined healthy Christians and healthy churches. It always will define healthy Christians and healthy churches. There's a fierce commitment to unity and togetherness. Why? Because God has never intended Christians to try to do this thing called the Christian life on their own. Never. There's no example in script, Scripture of a churchless Christian. There will never be an example of a believer that thrives apart from the people of God. It's just God's design, it's inescapable. There's a story of a pastor who was talking at a a picnic to one of the people in his church, a man who had been disconnected from the church for some time. And he asked him, he's like, hey, I haven't seen you around. You haven't been connected to the body. Tell me what's going on. And and this man's simple reply was, I I can do it on my own. My faith to me is personal, and I don't need other people. So they continued to talk, and this pastor, uh, sitting at the coals for the barbecue, he subtly separated one coal out from the rest of the bunch and continued to talk to him. You can kind of imagine if you've been at a, goal with, at a grill with coals, if you separate one out, what begins to happen to it? It begins to cool off. It's no longer usable for its intended purpose. It doesn't, it's not effective unless it's with the other coals. And that's really the picture of Christians. Like we need, we desperately need one another. Despite how much you recognize it this morning, you desperately need to be here. And we go for seven months You know, months on end without being with God's people, it is like an oasis in the desert. Just long to sing with God's people and see God's people and hear from them and us be able to share with them how we're doing. It's just, it's the way that God made us. It's the way that God remade us. When he recreated us in Christ, he made us a part of a family. You have new brothers and sisters. We're part of this family together. We have a fierce commitment to togetherness. That's why you hear us talk about it so much. Biblical community is a foundational value, not just for us, but in the Bible for all believers. So every single one of us created to function and flourish in community within a support system of family. Just this last week, we had multiple people uh, become members of Crossway, desiring to commit to the body as their family of faith. And every single time that happens, there's a strengthening of the church and there's a strengthening of those individual Christians because God intended us to do life on, like, with one another. And we're strengthened by saying, I want to do life with you and I want you in my life and I want to submit myself to the leadership of the church for accountability. I want to use my gifts for this particular family of faith. That's how God intended us to operate the fierce commitment to being together and to being in biblical community. And so this picture, and we can miss this part if we just kind of read through, it's almost like reading through a genealogy. You just kind of hear all the characters who are present. But think about this just for a moment. So present with the 11 apostles is Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, and the women, various women who were there gathered among the. what we'll see is maybe 120 people. In this brief sentence, there's a, there's a really profound miracle. So just think about this for a second. So, so Mary, the mother of Jesus, the last time her name is mentioned in the Bible. So she gave birth to Christ. And now where do we find her? Not as some sort of matriarch sitting above the rest of the apostles, but she's among them, devoted to prayer, which means she's praying to her son, her savior and theirs. This is a profound picture but not only that, Jesus' siblings, his brothers are there. The same ones that when he walked the earth and his ministry opposed him or were skeptical to him, now because of his resurrection, are there praying to their brother. I think we can lose sight of this. This is a remarkable picture. Of this early infant church. And for this period of 10 days, they were gathered in consistent and expectant prayer in Luke 24. Luke says they were continually in the temple blessing God. So in this 10-day waiting period, just kind of picture this if you can, the temple, which was a central place of worship for the Jewish people, these apostles who had seen Christ ascend and were increasingly so connecting the fact that he was the fulfillment of everything they'd been doing, still went to the temple at the hours of prayer. And I just have to wonder what that experience was like for them. Because they're surrounded by the noises and the sights of people bringing sacrifice. And they know increasingly that Jesus fulfilled that. All the types and shadows Jesus became once and for all as the one full and final sacrifice. But they're still there praying. Praying to their crucified, resurrected, and ascended Savior. And as they waited, they prayed no longer waiting for the holy spirit to come but waiting for the spirit's help in the, their moment of need and maybe some anxiousness as they wait for this promise to to come to pass and even though we may not be waiting for the holy spirit i think all of us and we'll get here in just a moment to some practical considerations like you might be waiting for something even today you're trying to figure out what your future holds so you're trying to make a significant decision you're wondering where finances are going to come from for a big purchase or a move or what have you fill in the blanks all of us wait for various things there's a couple of things i would encourage you with that we see in this posture of the of the apostles one is that let your waiting turn into praying so when you wait pray and just think about all the hours if it's true that we spend i don't know how many hours that it ended up being for each individual but countless days in our lives just waiting Even if we turned every single moment of waiting into praying, like what would God do through the prayers of his people? I say that to my own heart as much as I say it to you. But especially in the moments where we're waiting for God to show us something, to lead us in a particular way, don't just allow that to be kind of anxious toil, but take that all the way up to the throne room of grace. I always have to preach to myself, like don't just think about things, pray about them. I find myself thinking, I'm sure you do too, thinking about a whole lot any given day. And if those thoughts can move all the way up to the presence of God, it's a lot more fruitful there than just kind of tumbling in my head. My guess is it's probably similar for you. And there's a picture here. And I want to challenge you you men, just because I know men better than I know women. I joke last service, I mean, I know men or women decently well. I'm surrounded by them, but I am a man, so I tend to know men a little bit better. I think as men, we can, we can think of waiting as maybe a sign of weakness. Like somehow we just need to force the issue. Like don't wait around, just be a little more forceful to dictate where you're going to go. It's good to make decisions. We'll get there in a little bit. But let God's word kind of correct that perspective. Psalm 27 says this. It says, wait for the Lord. The command that we hate, as Pastor Chris said. It says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. That when you wait on the Lord, it's actually a sign of strength. You're strengthened by God. He sees it not as a sign of weakness, but of internal strength. And when we lay aside our desires to want to push on in front of God and not wait for him, it's actually a sign of humility and not of weakness, but of being strengthened in our waiting on God. So let your waiting drive you to praying. Let your waiting drive you to God's word. Psalm 130, verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope, I rely. We just sang that a little bit ago, right? It seems reasonable in this moment. So to kind of apply it to this, when you, when you see the apostles here, it's reasonable to think that what, what happened when they went to the upper room, they're spending time together, they're devoted to prayer, is that they also were examining God's word. Because a little bit like with Peter, it's almost out of nowhere. He stands up and he preaches kind of a mini sermon, which he's going to preach a bigger one in chapter 2. But it's almost like he got up from like a devotion. He was reading God's word. He's like, hey, wait a second. God's word said this was going to happen. Let's read that together. In verse 15, it says, In those days, the days that were devoted to prayer and in the temple blessing God, in those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 And Peter said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. There's two moments where Peter says, the scripture had to be fulfilled, and it's written in the book of Psalms. He's referring to God's word, so it seems that they've been examining God's word. He's been spending time looking at the word of God, and it's revealed something to him. He quotes two different Psalms, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, and reference at the latter part in verse 20. In countless times, Jesus, like in his earthly ministry, had sought to explain things to the disciples, and time and time again, you, you know the moments, they were just super dense. They didn't get it, right? So they wanted to like, I mean, they come and say, like, who's gonna be the greatest in your kingdom? Like, what, stop asking dumb questions, right? But Jesus, when you get to heaven, let me sit at your right hand. Like that kind of stuff. Or when Jesus really clearly explained like the nature of his suffering and his resurrection and his later glory, they just, they didn't quite connect the dots. And here's an example in Luke chapter 18. It says, in taking the 12, Jesus said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written about the Son of Man, which is a reference to himself, by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Really clear picture of what we know is the suffering of Jesus. But here's what it said in Luke in verse 34. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So the disciples were as close to Jesus as anyone, closer than anyone. They heard his teaching. They saw his miracles. They sat at his feet. They traveled with him. But overwhelmingly, they were confused. But what's helpful about this is what was, is clearly confusion in the book of Luke moves to dynamic clarity in the book of Acts. They begin to understand all the things they didn't understand before. The resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus and then the coming spirit is all going to bring the pieces together. And there's one moment at the end of Luke that kind of gives us some insight. It's like, what was the change? Well, ultimately, the change is always Christ breathing and bringing light in the darkness and bringing clarity where there's confusion. Luke chapter 24, it says this. Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, the Bible, all of its story points to Christ. It says, and then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And it's still the same today. If you find yourself like never truly understanding God's word, it could be that you've never been born again. Because without the Spirit's help, we won't understand God's word. We'll, it'll be disconnected for us. But even still for us as believers, when we come, when I come to preach, and when you go to read God's word in the morning or the night, whenever you have time with God, we still need to appeal to God. Like, God, just show me things from your word. Use your spirit to illumine once again, like that light, to show me in my heart, to show me in your word wonderful things about what you've done. We talked about a couple weeks ago, your, your word, your works, your ways, all those things. Show me. We need God's help still today. And as God's word became clear to the apostles, it led them to a decision point, particularly in, in reference to Judas. There is one of the 12 that had betrayed Jesus. Judas had died. We heard it in graphic form and what we just read. And Peter now is seemingly in the scriptures has found that that wasn't an accident. The scripture had to be fulfilled. This is God's intent. That even though the responsibility for Judas' actions falls squarely on him, it was to fulfill what the scriptures taught. That he would have a share in their ministry, but he would ultimately betray Jesus. And so, but it leads them to this decision of like, who's going to replace him? So we kind of move to a place of just real pragmatic, like how do you make decisions? And this is helpful for us, but let's read that part just real quickly. Verses 21 through 26. It says, so one of the men, so he's gonna unpack just briefly. Here's the qualifications for who's gonna replace Judas, and this is what he says. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. What's interesting about this is that f- those qualifications—someone who's been witness along with us from the time of John's baptism until now—that's actually not found in Scripture. He's not quoting a chapter and verse there. I think it's actually helpful to us because it's actually kind of like sanctified common sense. Spending time with God, praying, or with God's people. And it leads them to a place of having confidence. This actually makes sense. All of us have journeyed together. We've seen Christ. We've seen him die. We've seen him resurrected. We've seen his ascension. And we need somebody else who's seen all those things to replace Judas. And so that's where they go from there. And they put forward in verse 23 three two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, a joke that I don't know, have any idea why this guy has three names, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, You, Lord who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry, an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So this is where we'll kind of finish up this morning. One thing we have to recognize, we study through the book of Acts and books that are more uh, narrative books that kind of give a history versus like the epistles that kind of give you like bullet points of how to live the Christian life Um, This doesn't mean, I want you to walk away thinking that Matt just told me to roll the dice every time I make a decision, right? It's lucky number seven or whatever. This isn't prescriptive of every decision you make. It's descriptive of how this moment took place, but we'll see there's actually some application we can make in our own decision-making. We'll get there in just a second. But it's descriptive, not prescriptive. Drawing straws, rolling dice isn't necessarily like the best decision-making process. But here's what is good about this. If you're trying to make decisions, just think about this. All that led up to them rolling the dice, if that's what they did, it was either that or they drew some sort of straw, quite literally. But what led up to that was devotion. There was devotion that preceded this kind of What seems like a flippant way to make a decision. And why are we comforted by that? Well, before the apostles sought God's will, they were already in the habit of going to him. All of us have had the experience of calling on a friend that we haven't talked to in months or years just because they have that one tool you need and you need to borrow it. You sheepishly go like, hey, I know I haven't talked to you in months, but can I use your trailer? They're like, this is offensive. Why didn't you come around the last year, right? Right? You either are that friend or you know that friend. So we've all had that experience. And the reason that's difficult is because when you go to someone, there's a disconnection. And I think it's true spiritually as well. As if, if we want to go to God just when we have a problem to solve, we have a decision to make, we shouldn't be surprised when there seems to be some static in those lines of communication. Because there's not a nearness that, we, that already precedes that moment. Because God isn't just some bellhop in the sky or some genie that we go to and kind of rub on to make a decision. He's not a magic eight ball. He's the God of the universe. We go to him because we desperately need him, like the air that we breathe. And so leading up to those decisions, even the rolling of the dice, should be devotion that gives us confidence that we can trust that we're in his will. So devotion preceded it. Obedience and responsiveness to the revealed will of God... Which, and let me just distinguish between these two things. As we talk about the will of God, there's a way in which God's word has shown us his revealed will. That's what I mean by the revealed will of God. As you look at the pages of scriptures, things in this book that we can with confidence, if we're Bible-believing Christians, we believe this is breathed out by God, that this is God's revealed will to us, to live this way, to do these things, to worship God in this way. That's God's revealed will but there's a myriad of things that are God's concealed will. And that's a space that's so difficult for us. But it could be that we have trouble making decisions in those concealed areas of God's will because we haven't been in the pattern of responding to God in the matter of his revealed will. So we haven't lived our lives in such a way that we're responsive to what he's already revealed is true and necessary and right and good, for us in our lives, we shouldn't be surprised if we're toiling to try to figure out his concealed will, that there might be a little bit of disjointedness. Because again, we haven't made it a pattern of following what he's already revealed. And I wonder if some of us, our hearts kind of resonate with that, the difficulty we have of feeling like we hear from him in those moments that are more subjective when we're trying to make a decision. So, Devotion preceded this moment of rolling the dice, and also confident desperation defined it. Lord, you know, please show is kind of the essence of their prayer. Lord, you know the hearts of men. Please show us who you want to take Judas's part in the share of this ministry. Acts 4, there's another prayer that says, Sovereign Lord, you made, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, and that goes on to pray. So in part of this prayer as well, I think is a a good thing for us to wrestle through is when we pray for particularly big decisions, as part of that decision-making process, the cost benefits of what we're weighing is high on that list, the consideration of what's gonna make me most usable for the purposes of God. Because that's present in what they say. So if, if you look there, it says, which one of these two have you chosen to take place in this ministry? It's not just like, who am I gonna get along best with? Who's most like Judas and his personality to balance our gifts it's a question of usability. Who do you want to take part in this ministry that you've entrusted us with? And I can't tell you how encouraged I am to meet people who come to the church and they've, they've come and they're basically, I just met someone just about a week ago and they've, they're they moving to Wilmington and they did not want to decide where they're gonna live until they knew which church they were gonna be a part of. That's an expression of what I'm talking about. So I want to be devoted to the things of God. I want to be where God wants me to be used I want to choose a family of faith before I even decide where I'm going to live because I want where I live to facilitate healthy community. That is an overwhelmingly healthy perspective. And I just wonder at times if that falls deeper down the list, the consideration of what's going to make me most usable for this ministry God has entrusted to us, but I would submit that God wants that to be extremely high on that list. I won't say first because there's various things you could put at first place. But there's a confident desperation that the Lord is the one who acts. He's the one who's going to show. He's not in the business of playing hide and seek just to keep us in the dark. But he will call us to wait. Why? So we trust in him. So we keep going. So we rely on him. We don't trust in ourselves. God is eager to pry our hands off our own self-reliance so we'd rely on him more because he's glorified in that. It takes humility and dependence and he's shown to be mighty when we don't trust in ourselves So devotion preceded it, confident desperation to find it, and then ultimately action followed it. This is kind of the funny part. like At the end of all of this, there was a roll of the dice. There was a drawing of a straw to pick what was a pretty substantial ministry. And I think the confidence we can have is that there was a walk with God that led all the way up to that place that allowed them to make a decision. And here's where I think we get it twisted as believers a lot of times, is we can be paralyzed and thinking that somehow if we make a decision that we're just going to screw up God's will for our lives. That's an unbiblical perspective. Now, if you go against God's revealed will and you make a decision knowing it's going against that, yeah, you better believe it's going to mess a whole lot of things up. But it, to the extent that it's not a decision, you're not gonna find chapter and verse on most of the jobs that you take. There's some jobs you wouldn't be able to say this objectively doesn't match up with scripture. But there's significant decisions you and I will make that flat out don't come in chapter and verse. And Pastor James, who used to serve here, who was sent out as a church planner to upstate New York, I remember him talking through this and one of the simple ways he reflected is that like, really until there's, there's, it's all green lights until you get a red light. So when you try to make decisions, if God's word doesn't exclude it from obedience as a believer, there's a whole lot of decisions you and I have the freedom to make. And that should, should be a freedom that we feel relief from. Just do something. Roll the dice. If you're walking with God, then, then choose that straw. Make a decision. And y'all have been alive long enough to know that when we make the decision, a lot of times it's the decision making that God will he'll tweak us, he'll confirm He'll move us to a place like, no, not quite, but here's where I want you instead. But you wouldn't have known that until you made the actual decision and moved. And so I think there's a lot of freedom. This should encourage us because I think a lot of times we can spend unneeded time and toil thinking that somehow if we just make the wrong decision, we're just going to mess up the trajectory of our lives. It's not biblical. Be free from that. Walk with God, follow his revealed will and make decisions and God will lead you along the way. There's just a blessed freedom in that. As we close off, we're gonna take communion together. Let me kind of revisit some of the characters in this particular section of the story because there's a way in which they might apply to various people in this room. The first is the siblings of Jesus. As I mentioned, they were there gathered, devoted to prayer, calling upon their brother they were opposed to. And at the very least, what that shows us is that even the most skeptical of people can be transformed by the risen Christ. That there isn't anyone too far removed. And Pastor Jason shared this at the Men's Breakfast yesterday. There's no one too far removed that the grace of God can't capture and rescue and transform and change their lives and their hearts. And maybe this morning, maybe maybe someone in this room it just feels like you're in that place where you're maybe the unreachable. Just be encouraged that there's no one too far gone. The Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, considered himself the foremost of sinners. But we serve a gracious God who saves broken people, makes them into his treasure to show off his glory for the nations to see and for other people to be compelled by and their witness. And many of you know that reality. I know I do in my own life. The other example is Judas. Judas' story is a sobering reminder to us that familiarity with Jesus isn't enough. Judas walked with Jesus. He heard his teaching. Saw his miracles. As close as any human being could have been. But ultimately, he rebelled and rejected Christ. And some would argue like, well, I was just to fulfill the scripture. Well, that's not what the Bible seems to indicate. The responsibility for Judas's action was not just the sovereignty of God to fulfill Scripture. It was because he sinned and rebelled against Christ. So don't trust in anything that you have done to make you right with God. The only thing that can make us right with God is not familiarity with Jesus. It's not knowing the verses. It's not knowing the Psalms. It's not attending church enough or being baptized or taking communion. None of that will make us right with Christ surrender to him. Lay down all of your effort, all of your trying. Because when we get to the end, when we meet God face to face, I can assure you the only righteousness that we will possess is that of Jesus. We'll be covered in foreign robes that have shrouded every inch of failure that we have made in this life. And you'll find at that moment, your confidence is either in Christ or in yourself. And so I pray that today your confidence would be in yourself, in Christ. And as we stare at the cross, you know, it's a vivid depiction to us, and communion is that as well, is it the simple summary is that Jesus was treated as if he lived your imperfect life when he died on the cross. So that through your faith in his work, you'll, you can be treated as if you lived his perfect life. That's the miracle of the gospel. That's why we take communion. Every time we eat this cracker, drink this cup, remember the death of Jesus until he returns. Why? Because the only hope we have to be right with God, by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and for us who have believed, then we now, in joyful, obedient submission to Christ, want to please him with our lives. Make godly decisions. Be devoted to prayer. Be discerning as we make Decision to be devoted to God's people, knowing that we can't do it on our own. So let me invite you to bow your head just for a second. Let's take a take a minute and consider part of taking communion together is, is to examine our hearts and there may be some particular ways where you felt challenged by God's word to has exposed maybe areas of disobedience. Maybe you just partially have submitted your life in various ways to Him. And now is among the best moments for you to turn from that confess to God which means to agree that it's wrong and repent which means to turn from it and find God ready to to forgive and to change you he's good that way and to finish off our service we're doing this every Sunday this month in January we're going to read Romans 11. Verses 33 through 36, which is a doxology. It's a response of praise after hearing about the mighty things of God in that book. And as we've heard today from God's word, we'll say this in response. All right, you ready? Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All right. Pray that you have an awesome day. If you need anything, if we can serve you in any way, please let us know. And Lord willing, we'll see you very soon. Thanks. Love you.